You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to a, another episode of Radio MMT. Uh, I'm Kev. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin. I'm good. And hello to our lovely listener, who I believe is once again called Fred. Fred. <laughs> uh, we've got a few things on the show this week. Coming Let's... up, we can't ignore the stage three tax cuts, although I did try. Well, I, look, I prompted you on that one because, <laughs> like, often, you know, we try to plan well in advance of a show and then something happens during the week and you go, right, change everything. Uh, so. I think I think the current events stuff I just find so the most annoying because you just watch this stupidity unfold. Like, when it happens, we need to, we need to give the MMT perspective to current affairs as we they do. happen. That's our job. Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. Well, thanks to Kevin, we're going to look at stage three tax cuts later in the show. And also we have a letter from the Cape from Bill, which is going to be a lot of fun. It looks like it's one of my favourite letters from him so far. Yeah, yeah. He's getting stuck into it. He's kind of transitioning from some of his earlier letters with lessons in MMT, you know, mm. MMT basics. And now he's getting more into the commentary stuff. Yes. Which is, um, which is a lot of fun. Which is the good stuff, yeah, yeah. like. Uh, anything else that you can think of? Before I forget, can I just remind everyone that MMT the movie is coming to town. It's coming to town on the 8th of March, 7pm at Trades Hall, Solidarity Hall in Carlton. Tickets still available at modernmoneylab.org.au. Then you have to go to their events link and then their um, tour link. And Kevin, we have two free tickets to give away. How do we do that? Someone will need to uh, contact us at radiommt at gmail.com if you want the two tickets. But here's the catch. Mm. You have to bring a friend. So you get two free tickets, but you can't come on your own. So if you turn up by yourself, <laughs> they're going to say, no. Nah, we, we want you to come and introduce your friend to us. It's double or nothing. So preferably if you can bring somebody who needs converting. You know, that's it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, it is Australia Day, uh, Invasion mm, Day, whatever is. you want to call it. Um, my thought about this was just to ignore it because we should ignore it until until some of our original local population, pre-colonial population, mm. tells me when it's okay to have Australia Day, I'm not doing Australia Day. Right, it doesn't make any sense. It, it, like it has to be, it has to be, it can't be a divisive date. It's, it's only been Australia Day on the 26th since uh, 1994. I'm pretty sure that was in Hawke was PM back in mm-hmm. 94. 
I didn't I, know it was so recent. No, it's only like people going about. Oh, the tradition of Australia Day. It's it's been <laughs> it's been all over the shop, um, mm. and it's only been on this on the on the twenty sixth since nineteen ninety four. Like, you know, um, I've got kids older That's than that. That's within living memory, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so, so um, uh, we are going to we hear yes. <laughs> from Bill. <laughs> We're going to hear from Professor Bill Mitchell, who, of course, is one of the founders of modern monetary theory, the economics that Kevin and I look at on this show. And Kevin, I think we've been handed ringside seats to an economic smackdown this yeah, time. Yeah, right, yeah, good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Bill is giving us some background on a recent round of public sparring that went on between economists of different stripes because, of course, we have different kinds of economists and they have very different ideas of what's going on in the economy. Some of them have, have know what's going on and most of them don't. don't. And, and look, it sounds kind of condescending saying this, but... but they don't. Have a listen anyway. <laughs> it's time for A Letter from the Cape with economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Hello and welcome to another episode in my Letter from the Cape podcast series where I talk about MMT or modern monetary theory as it applies to the real world challenges and problems. Recently I had an enjoyable lunch in Melbourne with a well-known finance journalist and media personality. I was just back from working for a few months at Kyoto University in Japan and so the conversation was all about economic policy in Japan and why the rest of the world was pursuing a different policy path in dealing with the current inflationary pressures. In the face of rising global inflationary pressures, the Bank of Japan has held interest rates constant at around zero. Further, the government has also provided some modest fiscal support to households and businesses to ease the cost of living pressures, while they patiently waited for the supply-side inflationary pressures to abate. They clearly didn't consider the inflation to be the result of excessive spending and knew that pushing up interest rates would just harm households and businesses with outstanding debt and do nothing much to counter the factors driving the inflation. The rest of the world, as we know, took a starkly different path and have significantly increased interest rates. We know now that the inflation rate in Japan is lower than Australia. The approach pursued by most central banks, including the Reserve Bank of Australia, was misguided and has caused massive damage to the prosperity of many households in Australia particularly low-income families who were already stretched with large home mortgages. A few days later, the journalist wrote an article, How Japan Escaped Neoliberalism and Lived Happily Ever After, and I concluded it was a productive lunch that we had enjoyed a few days earlier. The journalist posed the question, How come the people of Japan get to have no rate hikes while we, and Americans and Europeans and British get hammered with them. He noted that Japan runs large fiscal deficits. The government has, quote, the second largest government debt in the world as a percentage of GDP. Interest rates are around zero. And in terms of what matters, unemployment is very low. Quote, politics is stable and there's no shortage of infrastructure or housing House prices have been fairly stable for 30 years. He also noted that the Bank of Japan buys most of the debt that is issued by government by just swapping bank credits for the debt. 
He wrote, Japan has simply stopped worrying about budget deficits because they figured out that the central bank can simply buy all the debt given their currency capacity and at the same time keep interest rates low. The Japanese government, quote, simply ignores the economic orthodoxy that says the budget must be brought back into surplus. Soon after, a former high-ranking federal government bureaucrat responded to the journalist's article. His chosen title was, Should Jim Chalmers adopt MMT to offer Swedish services with Swiss taxes? Which immediately sends a message that he doesn't know what MMT actually is and, instead, chooses to allow his readers to get a false impression of that body of work. He claimed to have, quote, spent his treasury career trying to balance government budgets. So the journalist's article was, quote, heresy. He then told his readers, quote, that quantitative easing, QE, is MMT in disguise. The journalist's article was not about quantitative easing which is just an asset swap where the central bank buys a government debt in return for a bank credit it gives to the seller of the debt. The bond is sold for cash. Importantly, the impact on the non-government sector of such a transaction is to leave its net financial wealth unchanged. The wealth portfolio changes, more cash, less bonds, but the overall wealth holdings are unchanged. The important point for Japan and any country that is running a fiscal deficit, that is, government spending exceeds tax revenue, is that there is a net increase in financial wealth in the non-government sector as a result. What the central bank does is irrelevant in this regard. An understanding of MMT would eschew any conflation between QE and MMT. Further, the commentator wrote, quote, Japan has got away with MMT because its households and corporates prefer to invest their savings locally, even though overseas cash accounts, bonds, property and shares have offered higher returns. There are two points to make here, which goes to the heart of achieving an understanding of what MMT actually is. First, think about the opening title that asked whether the Australian Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, should, quote, adopt MMT, which implies that MMT is a regime shift from some other system. Many people who are attracted or repulsed by the MMT ideas make that mistake. They say, won't it be good if we shift to MMT, or won't it be a disaster? The fact is that MMT is not a regime or a set of policies that a nation shifts to or moves away from. MMT is a framework for understanding how our modern monetary systems work. It allows us to understand the capacities of the currency issuing governments, such as Australia and Japan, and most nearly every other country, and the implications of using those capacities. Equally, It helps us understand the implications of surrendering those capacities, for example, in the case of the 20 Eurozone countries, who surrendered their own currency 
in favour of using a foreign currency, the euro. MMT is thus a superior lens for understanding the monetary system that prevails now. You don't shift to an MMT system. The point is that an understanding of MMT allows us to move away from the fiction that the Australian government is financially constrained in their spending and therefore needs to raise funds through taxation and debt issuance before they can spend. An MMT understanding allows us to see that the constraints on government spending relate to the real resources that the government can buy with its own currency and put into productive use. Such a government can buy whatever is for sale in its own currency, including all idle labour, which means that the existence of mass unemployment is a political choice, rather than being the result of the government not having enough funds to offer meaningful work to the jobless. Further, there are no MMT policies. To move from an MMT understanding to a specific set of policies requires us to impose a set of values or ideology. In this regard, MMT is largely apolitical. It is neither right-wing nor left-wing. A right-winger with an MMT understanding will advocate a totally different suite of policies than a left-winger, even though they both might share the same advanced understanding of how the monetary system works through their knowledge of MMT. Secondly, claiming Japan has been able to prosper with large deficits and the Bank of Japan buying most of the government debt because locals prefer to invest their savings in local assets is false. The fact is that the Japanese government could keep running those deficits with zero debt being issued and just instructing the Bank of Japan, which is part of the machinery of government, to ensure that all payments are credited to the relevant private bank accounts. The Australian government could do the same if it wasn't so wedded to the neoliberalism of mainstream economics. I'll be back again next time. Until then, see you later. Well, Kevin, yeah. this hand-to-hand combat between economists, I think it's more exciting than your average manga comic. Can I do uh, the um, the layman's summary of what he was talking about? Because, yeah, yep. like Jap- Japan, he's particularly interested in Japan because mm-hmm. through this whole inflation episode, Japan has not altered its uh, interest rates. The government is still spending into the economy. It hasn't changed anything because Japan recognised that this inflation episode was, was temporary due to supply-side problems and didn't need to do all the things that the, the rest of us are doing, mm. like uh, raising interest rates, etc. So they're, they're a really good contrast to, to our current circumstance. So when Bill talks about the Japanese government having a high deficit to GDP ratio uh, and interest rates still at zero, they haven't freaked out about inflation. They've kept a steady ship and they haven't done the things that Western economies have done. Exactly. So, so that's the environment he's talking about. Yes. So Japan has long been for Bill the poster child of how to manage your economy in the most optimal way. Like the argument between these two economists, and I will link to the two articles in the podcast version of this show, 
But what the mainstream economist is saying is the only reason the Japanese government can do this big spending is because the Japanese people are willing to use their savings to lend money or lend yen to the Japanese government. And they're doing that by buying the bonds that the Japanese government issues. So this economist is thinking that the Japanese government gets its money by borrowing the savings of the Japanese people. And this mainstream economist is also saying that sooner or later, the Japanese holders of Japanese bonds are going to get old and they're going to want to spend their savings in their dotage, at which time they will stop buying Japanese bonds and then the government, the Japanese government, will be in big trouble. <laughs> so what the MMT economists are saying is actually happening is that the Japanese government, like the Australian government, issues its own currency. So it does not have to go anywhere to borrow money. And like the Australian government, when it's issuing bonds, that is not a borrowing operation. So that's the argument. Is the Japanese government borrowing from the Japanese people or is it not? And we're saying it is not. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's creating the currency to make this accounting, mm. uh, pretty much useless accounting um, uh, method of, of issuing bonds as, as some sort of form of debt. Yes. Uh, yeah. Basically, they're sticking to this ridiculous idea that uh, that bonds fund government spending. Yes. Uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a myth. For starters, the Bank of Japan oh. is buying the bonds. Yes. Yes, on behalf of the government. And the other thing that I really loved about what Bill was saying is so many people, especially people who do not understand modern monetary theory, they think it's the same as quantitative easing or QE. And why do they think that MMT is the same diff as QE? It goes back to this idea of how do mainstream economists define what printing money is? They think QE is printing money and they think MMT is all about printing money and they are wrong about both things. So that's why it gets so confusing when you hear them. I mean, all, all we do with an MMT understanding is understand how the, the government creates currency. And, and I think what Bill is saying is you don't apply MMT. MMT is like you and I both wear glasses. If our glasses were foggy, it's like MMT <laughs> is, is, is the wipe that clears your glasses. Right. And so you can just see properly. You can, you can see how the system works. You can see how the government creates money. You can see where they put it. You can see how they take it out. It's so MMT is not what we would call a choice that you do. It's simply describing how all monetary systems work, including Japan's, including Australia's, including something that went on 3,000 years ago, including an economy that's on a gold standard. It's describing all these different ways of doing your monetary system. Yeah, it's just like cleaning your glasses. That's it. It's, it's cleaning your glasses so you can see how things work. And, and and we keep on saying this. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee That's it. Right. So, so once you understand how things work, you go, right, okay, well, now I understand. So this idea of how the economists understand printing money and thinking that MMT is QE because we're printing money, this is because they think when a central bank is buying the Treasury's bonds, so Japan's central bank is yep. buying their Treasury bonds, yep. That's what they call printing money. And that's also what they call monetizing the debt. So they don't like a central bank buying bonds directly from the treasury because they think the treasury is borrowing new money from the central bank. So they think the central bank has printed all this new money and now the treasury is borrowing it so the government can spend it. But as we know, Kevin, 
When you do QE, you are not printing new money. There is no new money created. There is no extra money put into the uh, economy. And why is that? Because what QE does, it's the central bank finding the bonds that are already in the economy and saying to the bondholder, and it can be the treasury, we're going to buy these bonds. So what we're actually doing is we're swapping some cash for bonds. So what they're doing is changing numbers in two different spreadsheets, I imagine. Yeah. So it's what the economists call an asset swap. Which, which gets swapped back again. This is the thing people forget. Yeah, is so it-, it started out as reserves or cash. It got swapped into bonds and now they're swapping it back into cash. That's what QE is. So it's not adding money to the economy. It's not giving the government money to spend. It's not giving companies money to borrow and, and invest in things. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, with one technical difference on that, is that mm. like the asset swap is a bond for cash and then, and then it gets swapped back again. There is the interest. And so there is the creation of new currency when the... When the Treasury pays interest uh, on the bonds, that's like the government spending into the economy again. It's that's act- true. Yeah. That is benefiting people who already have money. <laughs> yeah, so that's, so that's, yeah, so that's the government uh, paying interest on bonds to bondholders uh, and why it's often called um, corporate welfare because they're not doing anything for that other than just swap it. Like, like we've got cash, uh, it's earning a sweet bugger all. Can we swap it for a bond, which is going to pay a bit more interest? You swap it, uh, and then at the end, you get your interest and you swap it back again. You get yeah. the cash plus a bit of uh, interest. So if the Japanese government and the Australian federal governments are not borrowing in order to spend, where do they get the money? They create the money by spending the money. So it's one and the same thing. When they put new money into the economy, they are simply typing numbers into computers and that's putting new money into bank accounts. That's how it's done. Yeah, and, and, and what got me with the COVID thing was uh, uh, I remember the bonds couldn't have been bought unless the government had spent into the economy in the, <laughs> in the first, first place. place. Yes. So when you're hearing mainstream commentators talk about this, they're not understanding QE usually and they're definitely not understanding they modern monetary theory. They don't want to understand understand modern monetary theory because it challenges a lot of the fundamentals that um, that they've been taught. I mean, mm. we, we know what they teach at economics uh, courses, etc. And these people have built their reputations around it. I, I would have thought that learning something as new and as fresh and as and, and as as visionary, like, like learning how to understand your own economy in a new way. Would be exciting. exciting. But, but you'd have to do a big mea culpa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oops, we caused the GFC. Oops. <laughs> oh, oops, we shouldn't have done this. Oops, we were wrong there. And and yeah. so I kind of get it. But, uh, you know, you see, you see how a government creates currency when it's put under um, stress. And I always like using the example of World War II, mm. the global financial crisis, and particularly COVID. Mm. You, you see how a government performs without the disguise of all these bonds and the rest of it because they have to perform. There's an imperative for them to meet requirements with the government spending into the economy. Mm. They expose themselves. They expose the system nude and mm. raw so, mm-hmm. that, so that you can see it. Well, then they make the excuse that this is something you only do in an emergency, whereas we would like to see them do it all the time, but like they, Japan is doing but they, all the time. <laughs> but they do do it all the time. The spending that they do is always done in the same way. The government... But all, it's never enough. That's the problem. But, but so people say, oh, you have to go to these emergency measures. No, no, this is every time the government... Uh, spends into the economy, it's done the same way as it's... Mechanics are the same. Yeah, but but when it's on a large scale like that, you can see the whole system exposed. Well, I'm ready for a break, Kevin. Oh, and yeah? when we come back... Um, we can argue about this forever. We'll, well, we'll keep arguing when yeah, we come back. We're not arguing, we're discussing it. We're debating and discussing. If we're arguing, we'd be disagreeing. <laughs> and I agree with you, everything you're saying. <laughs> 
Are we going to come back to this topic? Or are we yes, going to start? there's a couple of other things that Bill said that I thought were pretty interesting. Right, yeah. And then after that, we're going to talk about the oh, tax, no. A3 tax cuts. No. We have to. It's our job. Okay. <laughs> okay it's our we'll job. be back soon. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. Well, I do like economic silliness from previous times more than current times. So just to go back to the, the Japanese situation a couple of decades ago, how is it that Japan is ignoring this groupthink that we were talking about where central banks around the world are raising interest rates and making life a lot harder for the average household? And Alan Kohler pointed out in his article... Now, now should we say mm. that when Bill was talking in his, about the, the, uh, the, the journalist... Let's the mysterious away. journalist who might be called Alan Kohler. Oh, we think it was Alan Kohler, mm, yeah. only because, well, when Anne had a look at the interview, it, <laughs> it mirrored exactly what, what Bill was talking about. So he was describing or reminding us how uh, Japan experienced this asset and property bubble and bust back in the late 1980s. Back then, can you believe it? Land prices dropped 70%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you had a mortgage, you would have been completely underwater. And then they had what they called the lost decade after that. So in Japan, the whole free market ideology got a bad reputation. So they kind of managed to free their mindset from uh, the neoliberal way of managing your economy. But back in April 2016, on his blog, Bill was talking about all this and he was noting that on the 31st of May 2002, which is over 20 years ago now, Moody's Investors Service cut Japan's long-term credit rating by two grades to A2. So A2 doesn't sound so bad, but in front of A2, you've got the triple A's and the triple doubles. And a a few pluses. Yeah, pluses and minuses. So it's like getting an F. Right. (laughs) And that put Japan's credit rating... Below Chile, Hungary, and Botswana. Right. And at the time, Japan was actually uh, sending foreign aid to Botswana. (laughs) (laughs) So these credit ratings agencies were effectively saying that Japan's economy was more fragile than Botswana's economy. So these rating agencies' ratings are not worth the paper they're printed on. Those rating agencies, uh, they were involved in in all that shonky uh, credit rating of, mm. of, of dodgy dodgy CDCs and stuff. So basically they'd say that a, a bank's portfolio or this group of loans um, looked pretty good. Yes, um, gave it a gold star. Which means they could flog it off for a good price and they're all in cahoots mm. and, and they're just, just rubbish. So back in the day they thought that the government of Japan was spending too much and going into debt and they wouldn't be able to repay their debts, right. which is effectively pay off the bonds. Yep. So Bill then goes on to quote what he calls the ravings of a former chief IMF economist writing in Barron's magazine. And this economist said, how can a rigid economy with a shrinking population, negligible growth, minuscule immigration, flat wages, dismal productivity and waning competitiveness ever pay off its debt? It can't without huge reforms as everyone who's ever studied economics knows. So they're pretty confident about themselves. Yeah, so saying how can they ever pay off this debt, to which, uh, like, they don't have to. 
they haven't, and it doesn't matter. This is, this is this is the point. Well, they can always pay it off. Oh uh, yeah, except except by their own definition, they would say that they need to clear the the national debt, mm. and they can only be cleared by taking all the profit from the private sector and returning it to the government. That's how you. <laughs> yes. That's how any economy clears its debt. It takes all the profit from the private sector and returns it to the uh-huh, government That's th- right. to, to have a balanced book. If you really wanted to clear your debt, you effectively would take all the money back out of the economy and you wouldn't have an economy anymore. You, well, you'd have, you'd, have, you'd have a nice balanced books and, and, and everybody <laughs> would be um, broken destitute. <laughs> that's the important part. <laughs> so anyway, that's just to say that this stout between the MMT economists and the mainstream economists, it's been going on for decades. And so this was just one of the latest little biffs and boffs going on. I don't think Japan really cares because, like, the, the, the facts are the facts. Their economy is working fine. They're not doing what they're supposed to do and everything's going yeah. fine. It's well, a- actually, back then, Bill quoted the Japanese finance minister as saying of these rating agencies, just because they do such things, we won't change our policies. Yay, go Japan. <laughs> which is basically sticking the middle <laughs> finger up to them, which in the fullness of time has proven to be exactly what should be done. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Can we have a listen to the, um, give people a taster for this MMT movie that's coming March 8th to Trades Hall? Run off and get your tickets at modernmoneylab.org.au or email us at radiommt at gmail.com and we can give you two free tickets as long as you bring a friend. So this is the official blurb for Finding the Money, yeah? Yes. It's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open, and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. Finding the Money, an exciting new documentary, takes us inside the debate between economists who say we can afford to deal with inequality and the climate crisis, and the economists who say we can't afford it. An unconventional economic theory is gaining some traction. Modern monetary theory, MMT. And one of its leading proponents is Professor Stephanie Kelton. Finding the money. Coming to Melbourne for limited screenings in March 2024. Finding the money. On tour with renowned economist Stephanie Kelton and independent filmmaker Maren Poitras. Tickets on sale now via modernmoneylab.org.au. The true story of money is not the story that I've been told. Finding the Money, a pivotal documentary for our time, a 3CR supporter. Sounds very exciting, Anne. Very exciting. <laughs> Sounds like a real film, doesn't it? It does. But what happens if we if we get if we get credibility and and this MMT goes mainstream? Oh, we're out of a job. We're out, we're, we won't be able to do the show anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good. Okay, I, I would like to be um, made redundant. Uh huh. Yeah. And coming up in February, we will be talking with the director Maren Poitras, and she oh, had yeah. a lot of really interesting things to say about the making of this film. Can we talk about stage three tax cuts oh, now? Okay. Okay. So this is important from an MMT perspective to talk about tax, and I don't think it's talked about anywhere near enough. So the stage three tax cuts were designed to flatten the tax system so that people earning between $45,000 and $200,000 were paying a flat rate of 30%, and there used to be a, a graduation from 30% to 37% somewhere along that scale, I'm not quite sure where. So uh, we have what's known as a progressive tax scale where the more you earn, the more you pay in tax, 
once you passed thresholds. So, you know, we've got a tax-free threshold, I think, of around $20,000. So the first $20,000 you earn uh, attracts no tax for everybody. And then the next 30000 you earn is taxed at this particular rate for everybody. And then once you get over that, uh, it goes up again for everybody. So you have to actually earn more than these these thresholds to, to start attracting that tax, but it's only applied to the amount which is above that threshold. Mm. That's, that's a progressive tax scale. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of things that need to be understood when we talk about tax. Yes. And the first is that taxes do not pay for government spending. So most people would think that they're upright citizens paying their taxes in order to help the government buy stuff. Yeah. So the government does not need your taxes to spend. It never uses tax money to spend. If we're talking about the federal government, it's different for state and local governments because they don't issue the currency. But ultimately, they could be all funded by the federal government if we had that system set up that way. 100%. So so then a progressive tax system. Uh, Why do we have a progressive tax system? Uh, What you're talking about is one of the reasons that MMT would agree that we still need taxes, and that is to... um, Affect behaviour. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, it, well, that is to distribute wealth and income more evenly as the market will inevitably distort it. Yeah. We still need taxes, even though the government is not using them to spend. Okay, so, so what I'm saying is that the move by the Morrison government to flatten the tax scale mm. is a very neoliberal application of tax ideology. It's basically saying that, um, uh, that the rich people... They shouldn't be penalised for earning so much money. They should be free to enjoy all of the wealth that they've accumulated and they shouldn't be targeted by governments to have their spending reduced. Mm. That means they don't understand how inequality has an adverse effect on society. They are basically just short-sighted and greedy, as we say the whole time. (laughs) Uh, So I think the Labor government, even though it doesn't understand how the economy works Mm. um, because it still believes the deficits are bad, Right. this move to change the, the nature of the stage three tax cuts, they are still uh, applying the 37% rate above 150000 I think it is. Um, and they are giving more tax relief to low-income earners, mm. which is where it's needed. Be- uh, so uh, where would you put the tax-free threshold then? I, I would say that uh, anybody who's on a, about 50 Fifty thousand to seventy-five thousand dollars a year should not pay tax. Is not going to have anything left after tax. over expenses, right? Like they're going to spend that money on on everything, and they'll have very little left over. So tax-free threshold should apply to, I reckon, uh, somewhere between fifty and seventy-five k. Let's say seventy-five k. Mm-hmm. What are people going to do with that money? They're going to spend into the economy. They're going to go out more. They're going to they're going to buy things that they need. They're going to put new tires in their car. They're going to do all the spending that low income earners need to do to to function. That's a good example of applying your MMT lens because MMT does not say what the tax free threshold should be, but. When you know that the government doesn't use tax money in order to spend, then you can say, well, then we could put the threshold up if we want to see more consumption at those lower incomes. So MMT doesn't say put the uh, tax-free threshold up. MMT allows me to see the dynamics of the uh, economy. And then Kevin says, put the tax-free threshold (laughs) at $50,000 to $75,000. And I've been saying that for years. I I was in the Australian Workers' Party. MMT. That was one of our policies. And I I had to convince the executive to um, to put that policy. And they did, to their credit. Mm. Now, this is something which I've been going on for years and years about, is that if you run a business, you're taxed on your disposable income, your profits. 
So your business brings in a certain amount of money, and from that you deduct your rent, your electricity, your labour costs, all your expenses, and then you are taxed on the profit, which is, if that was a domestic situation, that would be your disposable income. So if you're a household, why why are households taxed on all of their costs? Why can't they deduct their running costs, like uh, mortgages <laughs> and rent and electricity, etc.? Mm-hmm. Because Tax is not needed for government spending. Tax is there for behavioural. That's the second reason, to alter behaviour. So, for example, if you wanted less people to, say, be smoking or gambling, then you would put taxes on those activities. Yeah. So uh, I will rant and rant and rave about that to, to, to the end of days. Anyway, so I hope that gives some sort of understanding of the context of the, mm. uh, of the stage three uh, tax the cuts. The other thing is, if the tax cuts were to go through as originally promised, that would not affect whether the government can find dollars to spend. Yeah. Now, it might affect how much the government can spend because one of the things that taxes do is it creates what MMT economists call the resource space or the fiscal space to spend into. So what that means is that you're taking spending power away from someone in order for the government to spend so that you're not both competing for the same resources and so you're not going to drive inflation. Yeah, so if, if for instance, at the moment there's a lot of uh, demand for building, we have a, a chronic shortage of public housing, there's not enough uh, supplies of, of building materials, there's not enough tradies. If the government wanted to expand its public housing program, it might apply taxes to the private sector building so that it's not worth them while yeah. engaging that activity and that way it can free up the resources for itself. That's what we're talking about there, yeah? Mm, that's a good example. Yeah. And then the last reason that the MMT economists will say you still want the new government to tax even though they're not using any of your tax money to pay for anything And that is that fundamental thing that we understand about how you create a monetary system, which is that you first need to tax in the currency that you're going to spend so that people want that currency. Well, they have to use it. Uh, And I think that could be achieved through GST. So, for instance, Mm. um, you don't need to apply uh, income tax to enforce the currency. If, If GST is applied by the government... That means that uh, anybody who's selling something needs to pay GST in Australian dollars. It's all done electronically these days. You, you flash your card and it has to be Australian dollars because they have to pay GST in Australian dollars. And so mm. that would um, hold that, that regime down fine. take care of it. Yeah. So that's why you wouldn't need an yeah, so, income tax. So bugger off and leave uh, five-figure income uh, earners alone. You, it's, <laughs> exactly. It's, I think that um, the government has fallen into the neoliberal model to tax five-figure income uh, earners to keep them lean and mean, which is a, a neoliberal. Yeah. Uh, but we'll go yeah. into that some other time. We're running out of time. Um, we've got to uh, move on fairly soon. Was that? Did that? Do you reckon that helped people? Like, it wasn't as painful as I thought it was going to be. I know. I know. <laughs> and look, and I guess if you believe that taxes fund government spending, go and do some reading. What I found really interesting when someone was explaining this to me is that when you pay your taxes, they go into an account called an OPA, I think, an official public account, and that number just stays in there. It never comes back out of that account. So that's sort of a way of saying that your taxes go nowhere. nowhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're needed for things, but um, but that's it. So we're heading off to the Albion. We're off to the Albion on Smith Street, Collingwood. Rightio. Um, and, uh, and we've got Mafalda coming up next. We've got Finding the Money coming up. We've got all sorts of things coming up. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Lovely to speak with you again. Yeah, likewise, Kevin. We'll see you next time. Next time. Okay. 
You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his MMTed.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. You've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, I've heard of the theory of comparative advantage, or the quantity theory of money, or the loanable funds theory. Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis, or the Ricardian Equivalent, or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're going to get musical. We're going to do the regression theory of money to music. That would work. That's good. Regression <laughs> theory of money. What runs with regression? Regression, suppression, <laughs> instability. There's a world of opportunity here. This, this is the lead. This is going to work. You know Bill's going to want to Like, you'll be straight on that. Uh-huh. Have you ever sung before in a band? No, you, don't, you do not want to hear me singing, Kevin. <laughs> What's your next theory? Just, just, like, do it to make you feel like you're listening. <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. Okay, okay. I'm not discouraged. How's about dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium? Get them section of this, and the road might be up to us. Never too late to learn anything. Instrumental, macroeconomic square. I'm short. This is, this is when I wake up one morning and say, I've got another theory, Anne! <laughs> which, is, uh, yes. which is about this equilibrium model, which the neoclassical economics is based on an equilibrium model. And it occurred to me that uh, the equilibrium model works best when everybody earns the same hourly rate. They're all paid the same. There's no such thing as inflation, that everything is in a steady state. An hour of my time is worth an hour of your time. A house is always what it's worth. And when, when you have a very stable economy like that, the equilibrium model actually works, okay? Mm. Be- because everything you exchange is it's a straight swap. And this also applies to profit. If you don't start exploiting labour, etc., then everything's fair and, and it's an equal swap. And that's what the equilibrium model of neoclassical economics is based upon. Now, the further you move away from this very steady environment, the more destabilised the equilibrium model becomes. To the point that you can have somebody who is fully employed and cannot 
participate properly in the free market because even though they're fully employed, they still don't have enough money for a roof over their head, food in their mouth, clothes on their back. And that's when the distortions in the market have caused the free market to start to disintegrate. So you go from a very steady state and then the more variables you put in, the more profit, the more differentiation in wages, the more unstable the the economy becomes. Uh, Households used to be able to survive on a single income. Now they need a double income and often that's not enough. So you can see the system moving further and further away from that that steady base. We know that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Mm. And so what a progressive tax system does is it it stops the distortions in the market caused by people who are too rich. Mm. People who have too much money will distort the prices. And most obviously in our economy, that's housing, has been thrown into enormous disarray because too many people have too much money and they get too many tax incentives from investing in property, you know, not to live in. Okay. Can I just point out that yep. the equilibrium part is the Kevin theory edition? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I always open a challenge. Uh, RadioMT at gmail.com. Challenge my theories at all times. Challenge Kevin's theory about what equilibrium it's, is. It's a win-win situation for me because if I'm proven wrong, then I learn something and that's a win. Uh, okay. and, if, and if I'm not proven wrong, then, then I'm a winner. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.